You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. You're listening to Episode 6 of Messy Jesus Business. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, and practice contemplation and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Our guest today is Sister Allison McCrary, a sister for Christian community. Sister Allison McCrary is a social justice movement lawyer, restorative justice practitioner, and a tribal citizen of the Anianwea United Cherokee Nation. She ministers as the National Criminal Justice Reform Strategist, supporting about 50 formerly incarcerated people-led nonprofits, a spiritual advisor on Louisiana's death row, and founding director of the Louisiana Reentry Mediation Program. She formerly served as the statewide campaign manager for the Unanimous Jury Coalition, abolishing a 138-year-old Jim Crow law in Louisiana. The executive director of the National Police Accountability Project, president of the Louisiana chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, and founding director of the New Orleans Community Police Mediation. Sister Allison also provides support to various social justice movements and organizations locally, nationally, and internationally. Plus, I'm proud to say she's one of my close friends, and uh, we've had all sorts of shenanigans together. (laughs) But I don't think that that's what this podcast is about. Anyway, I'm happy to uh, introduce you to Sister Allison if you don't yet know about her. You can learn more about her and her ministries at sisterallison.org. Our conversation explored all sorts of topics, including what it means to defund the police and invest in community, challenge the status quo, and the inevitability of having enemies when following Jesus, and even how city budgets could actually reflect the Beatitudes. Imagine that. Enjoy. Sister Allison, hi. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. All right, my friend, I'm just wondering to start if you'd be up for sharing a little bit of your story. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was, um, I was born and raised in rural Georgia, uh, in the South of the United States. And, um, that really shaped my perspective in terms of, uh, what it means to be a white person and a native American Bible citizen, um, in the U S South in a city that was about 50% black, 50% white. And, Um, seeing um, our middle school and high school shut down for weeks at a time for racial riots and seeing the the KKK march on our town square growing up 
And so having questions around racial justice was something that was in me from a young age. Um, and also growing up in a, a biracial house um, with a white father and a native um, mother and how that played out, um, especially in terms of um, domestic violence in my home growing up and mm -hmm. our, the history of genocide um, that is in the DNA of native people and seeing injustices from an early age, um, I think that, you know, planted seeds early for me in terms of asking questions for if the God I'm reading about and learning about on Sundays <laughs> is a God of love, then why is this stuff happening? And what is my role in it? And was faced with those questions from an early age. Um, my father didn't want any woman to be more educated than he was, and he wasn't educated. And so um, going to college was never really like something on my radar. Um, I started off going to a local community college and working three jobs and had professors who really encouraged me to write and who encouraged me to keep studying mm -hmm. and saw things in myself I didn't see in myself and that no one, no, no one in my family could articulate or see. Mm -hmm. And so um, I kept studying and uh, did a, ended up traveling with some professors in undergrad um, to live in Germany and England and do studying and working there and came back to the U.S. to work at the United Nations. Uh, felt like to do social justice work, and especially racial justice work, um, I could be more effective in a culture that was more of my own in the South. And so mm -hmm. I was looking at moving back South and um, looking to live in the city, not in the country. Um, <laughs> as much as I love the country and living off the land and with the land, um, looking to move into a city and so ended up in New Orleans uh, just b before Hurricane Katrina hit and uh, started working as a community organizer and then later on death penalty cases um, and it was the guys on death row who told me you know sister Allison we need lawyers who really know how to love us Mm. Uh, who really love and care about us and we think you'd be a great lawyer <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. so it was the, the guys on Seth Row who encouraged me to go to law school and I didn't think I was smart enough for law school. I didn't think I could get accepted into any law school. I thought if I did get in, uh, who was going to pay for it? Because my family was, um, was raised poor and working class and didn't mm -hmm. have money to pay for law school. And if I did get in, could I emotionally make it through three years of law school and all of the things. And mm -hmm. so all of this early material in my head of that was saying law school isn't for you, being a lawyer isn't for you. Um, but the guys on death row kept telling me to go. And mm -hmm. so I listened to them. And uh, so ended up at Loyola Law School, wanted to stay in New Orleans and um, do law school here rather than other cities. And um, got involved in a lot of social justice movement lawyering. I had great mentors um, in law school, great faculty members. Um, who really lived out the um, Jesuit values and incorporated that into their legal practice. And so was representing uh, a number of priests and nuns and other activists who um, were putting their lives on the line um, at protests and doing civil disobedience and was very inspired by how they were living their lives, how committed they were 
and I yearn for um, for that a life of a deeper commitment of something bigger than myself, something more than just me and a nuclear family mm. uh, in the traditional sense. And I yearned for community. I yearned, knew that social justice was my first vocation and I was going to do that no matter um, what um, mm-hmm. way of being in the world uh, I was going to say yes to um, and how God was calling me. And so um, so started discerning religious life when I was in law school after meeting a number of sisters and after law school, um, yeah, entered religious life. Yeah. And that journey ever since. And um, so. Yeah. And for those who haven't ever heard of the Sisters for Christian Community, um, what is your charism and what's your community like? Yeah. So like most sisters, we make, um, we profess um, perpetual vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. Um, our charism is oneness, um, to live and work that all may be one. Mm-hmm. And we do that in a variety of ways. Um, we minister in all the ways that women are capable. Um, so I minister as a social justice movement lawyer and criminal justice reform strategist and other spiritual advisor on death row. Other sisters are social workers, teachers, um, work in parish ministry, um, community organizers, healing work, all types of ministries. Um, yeah. We have sisters all over the, all over the globe. We're a um, majority U.S. congregation that was founded after the Second Vatican Council. Um, yeah, a little about our community. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and now what is the, I know you're involved in a lot of things and you are a great servant of God's people. Uh, but I'm wondering, like, what's the main work that you're involved in at this time? Yeah, so my full-time work right now is as a movement capacity building strategist for criminal justice reform movements mm-hmm. that are led by formerly incarcerated people. So I work with about 50 nonprofit organizations that are started and led by formerly incarcerated people, people who serve time in prison or jail and who have come out and are uh, organizing other people who are impacted by the system to change the system and to um, reduce incarceration in this country and make sure that people can thrive after incarceration. Um, Another ministry that I've had um, for 15 years has been as a spiritual advisor on Louisiana's death row, accompanying people to their executions and in light of um, the national movement that has sprung forth um, after much time of many of us doing it uh, full time for decades is around police reform work and racial justice work in this country. And so we're at a pivotal moment um, where as a country, we have a chance to get this right and to transform the, the system of policing in this country. So that's yeah. Funny. And what is the vision that you all have, all the people you're working for? Like, what's the vision you're working toward? Yeah. So, I mean, for decades, calls have been made by those um, seeking to hold the police accountable for changes in the ways that communities of color are policed in this country. I think dates back um, to the early days of slavery, where the first police in this country, their job was to catch runaway slaves. And then, of course, during Jim Crow and other eras, it's always been around policing and over-policing of Black people Mm -hmm. um, to perpetuate 
the system of plantations, which has been replaced with the system of prisons. Most plantations in this country were replaced with prisons. And the prisons I visit here in Louisiana, uh, people who are incarcerated make two cents an hour to work in fields. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's prison. state sanctioned slavery that continues. Yeah. State sanctioned slavery, convict leasing still happens where people who are incarcerated are um, rented out to for profit corporations for their labor, all of these things. So the system of policing is, is linked, directly linked to slavery in this country. Um, and so local communities are um, right now advocating for changes in their budgets of their local police departments to be reduced in favor of investing in the well-being of their communities and healthcare and education and housing and behavioral health services, um, employment, job training, social workers, mental health workers, domestic violence intervention specialists, community mediators, all of these things that truly make people feel and be safe in their communities. Mm. And understanding that the police usually do not make people feel safe. And even as a a younger white woman, when I see blue lights behind me, I get scared. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think anyone has really had a lot of positive experiences um, when approached by the police. And so it's like, what really makes us feel safe um, in this country? And how do we want our tax dollars? Like, that's our money. Um, and so how do we want this money um, used to transform our communities? Um so that we can all be safer and healthier and more economically prosperous. And I think with the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of cities are gonna have budget deficits because of a significant loss of tax revenues. So budgets are gonna have to be cut one way or another. And so we're really at a prime time for us to really examine our city budgets and to for systems that are perpetuating injustices, especially racial injustice, for us to look carefully at those and um, to, you know, start out with a zero budget and let's like look line item by line item and ask, is this what's for the common good of the community? If the, is this what's good for everyone? Um, and especially for black communities that have been over and um, overly represented in the system of incarceration. Yeah. Yeah. So is the vision just to be clear that there would be no more police or is it just that the, the way policing would happen would be different? Yeah, so that's the difference between um, policing reform um, versus abolition. So a lot of people get really nervous when they hear this word abolition and defunding the police that are going around. And and there's lots of steps towards reforms and there's lots of steps towards abolition. And abolition means that we work to chip away and reduce the overall impact of policing. And so we want to decrease the power of policing so that there are positive and proactive investments in the community that support the health and well-being of the community. So some people, some reforms that have been advocated and implemented, and a lot of these um, were taking place when George Floyd was was killed by the police, when his life was taken away um, by the police. These systems, all these reforms that people are asking for were in place um, in Minnesota. So. Um, a lot of people are asking for you know, reforms such as body-worn cameras or community policing or more training for officers or civilian oversight boards. Um, and those all increase a police's budget and they don't challenge 
um, the notion that police keep us safe. Mm -hmm. um, they give more money to the police and it reinforces the idea that this is what keeps us safe. Ah. It legitimizes this system that says it can be reformed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and whereas when we talk about defunding or abolition, which I like calling it, you know, divest and reinvest. It's a, it's a, it's reinvesting in community safety. It's reinvesting in public safety. Yeah. And so that can look like a number of things um, from withdrawing participation in police militarization programs um, to capping overtime accrual to suspending the use of paid administrative leave for officers who are under investigation um, to withholding pensions and not allowing cops to retire if they're involved in excessive uses of force. And so there's a number of things that can help us prioritize investing in our communities and health and education and affordable housing and jobs um, if we're able to reduce the police budget. And the police budgets in most cities just keep going up, up, and up, mm. and no one has really questioned it. And it plays on this idea of like fear of violence. And in New Orleans, we have some of the highest crime rates in the country, and we have the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world, not just oh. in the United States, but in the world. And so if policing and incarceration were keeping us safe, then we would have less crime. Right. <laughs> less crime. So yeah. it's not working. And so we need to really reinvest in our communities and into what data and studies show really um, helps keep communities safe, giving people jobs so they don't have to steal from others, giving people education so they can get meaningful work, uh, making housing affordable um, so people have safe places to live, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a more holistic, relational approach, which to me just sounds so much more gospel. <laughs> I love that. Like, yeah. yes, that's the kingdom of God that I believe in is like people loving each other, not controlling each other. Yeah. And I think redefining what safety is, you know, like what makes us really feel safe. And mm. also I think making sure that we don't replace one system that isn't working with another system that isn't necessarily working. So, mm. um, you know, while I say like, okay, let's, let's, let's look at like, police aren't trained as social workers Yeah, <laughs> has to do the role of social workers. And yeah. so then we can give money to more social workers. Um, but a lot of social workers are also, there's people in the community who are doing those same things that social workers are doing. They're just not licensed to do it, but they're mm -hmm. making it happen. And so how do yeah. we really invest in community and look at what that looks like? And I think the whole, you know, the call to divest from police and reinvest in communities. Um, it's also supports what, you know, Pope Francis has said about ending capitalism and a lot of the evils of capitalism in this country. Um, the police and the military, they exist to maintain a status quo, to maintain a form of social control that protects capitalism, that protects private property, and that keeps certain people poor and certain people rich. Yeah preserving power and preserving white supremacy in this world. And I think we really need to challenge um, those notions and ask why do these systems exist? And I think in a time of COVID-19 where people have had time <laughs> to think about um, their systems of oppression and how they're being oppressed because they don't have to work two or three jobs to feed their families because there is no work for them to do. Mm. Um, there's been time to really think about that and to organize and to educate ourselves about these systems of oppression mm. and, and what to do about them. 
And so I think we're really in a special moment right now. Um, my elders and mentors um, are telling me they've, they've never seen a moment like this. There's never been a moment like this in the country. And we have one chance to really get it right and to really um, look critically at what's happening and what's really for the common good of the people. So, and what are they saying um, is the main thing that we, I mean, I, I'm thinking myself as a white person, like what, have they said like what I need to be about or people like me or the. All of those things. No one is exempt. This is yeah. what we should be about. <laughs> as yeah. if one of the press, we all are. It's about fighting for our collective liberation. And if one person isn't free, then none of us are free. It's, it isn't in this, the idea of policing is not a black issue. It's an all of us issue. It's all of our tax dollars that are being used to oppress a certain community. And it's our tax dollars that are being used right now to incarcerate 70 million people in the United States who are incarcerated. So such a big number. It's ridiculous. The ongoing, you know, formerly incarceration uh, has the collateral consequences of being incarceration. So your inability to vote, your inability to get a housing loan, um, the inability to get into colleges and universities to get educated, to get jobs. 70 million people are impacted by that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and it's, it's a failure. If I can just say so to me, it just, it feels like an embarrassing failure that we as Christians continue to allow this to happen. So it is, it's like totally overdue. It's time for the whole system to just collapse and for us to reconstruct something that's more in line with the gospel values that we believe in, you know, like what, what would a society, how would the United States look if we actually had the Beatitudes as our guiding principles, for example? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What would that look like if every time, you know, when, when cities made their, their budgets every year that they use the Beatitudes as their guiding document for it? Because city budgets reflect the type of world we want to live in. Mm. Those budgets are the clearest expression of a community's values, um, a community's priorities. And so what does a budget look like that really prioritizes um, what the Beatitudes teach us? Um, yeah. Yeah. Prioritizing human needs programs, care for the most vulnerable people in our society, and a real investment in our community. The social safety nets that we need and public safety programs such as job training and substance abuse centers and behavioral health services to really help keep people um, whole, safe, and healthy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, I'm reminded as you kind of describe this vision and, and the problems with our current system, how, you know, the different roles and things that I've done in my own life, there's been times where I've been trained in um, different ways to be a nonviolent crisis interventionist. And, and I remember even them saying at the trainings, the police don't have these skills. Uh, they don't know how to read someone's behavior and respond nonviolently to them. They're just told to be defensive. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it might just be as basic as that is like, how, how do, can we call upon other people to come into situations of crisis and, and talk people down? so that it doesn't escalate and turn into arrest and more criminalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's more, it's definitely a more compassionate way to love our neighbors like we're called to do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So basic, but also like, I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful for the work you're doing and for the vision and for all the people that are engaged in, in, um, what did you, how did you put it? Deconstruct and reconstruct or you, you had another way of saying it. Divestment and reinvestment. Yeah. Divestment, reinvestment. Yeah. So that that's beautiful. And it's like, that actually is a sign of hope for someone like me, who's not as conscious of the complexities of it, but is like energized by the fact that things are in progress and I can, I can get involved and I can be supportive and I can, I can be a friend and an ally and I can do everything I can to, to walk with and accompany um, as others are, are really building the reign of God and, and transforming. So I thank you so much. I know I'm aware too of how like excruciatingly painful and complicated it can be. Um, so I'm wondering in this context of like, working for systemic change, but also being very relational. And I, I also, you know, I know you as such a, a deeply caring person. What, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and in the work that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Jesus really challenged the status quo in so many ways. Um, and, you know, Jesus didn't say that like, this whole thing, this notion of challenging the the movement of Black Lives Matter, and you know Jesus said that you know Samaritan lives matter, yeah, <laughs> um, right. that Gentile lives matter, that all these people who are different from them, that their lives matter because they were on the margins, and so we're called to go to the margins of the margins of the margins, and so when it, we try to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and live out the gospel values, um, who's on the margins of the margins of the margins? So mm. when you're in a community meeting um, or in a city council hearing, who's the, you know, where are the people of color at? Where are the people who are, who are lesser, lesser able-bodied? Where are the people who are gender non-conforming or queer or transgender? Um, how are their voices being, being lifted up and how am I being an ally to them um, and with them? Mm-hmm. And what does that, what does that look like? And so when we're called to bring about the reign of God, that, that's a job for all of us to do. It's not just the people, you know, on the streets in the movement. You can do that in lots of different ways by, you know, organizing, having the hard conversations. Um, this stuff is hard. And sometimes it's people in our own families who are the hardest to have these conversations <laughs> with. Um, the the ever-expanding political divide in this country is tearing families apart. Um, and it's heart wrenching. And so these conversations are really hard to have. And so just invite us to like, listen deeply to each other and, and really ask like, what are, what are the values, you know, like, cause our values really a lot of times are the same. Mm-hmm. The political messiness of this world is what, what divides us. And it's sadly, it's only going to increase. I'm mean, here with the November presidential election, regardless of of who wins that election is there's going to be even more civil unrest in this country by whichever side doesn't win. And there's going to be more violence. And I'm, I'm terrified really. And I think we really need to pray and reflect and ask what is the role of, of the Christian community um, in preparing for this? And um, what is our role in keeping our community safe um, during that time? 
Yeah. But the time from election day in November until inauguration in January, there will be a lot of civil unrest. And um, I think thinking about like, how do we, what is our role in healing that divide? Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you have to compromise your values, um, but you know, what really helps transform hearts and minds? A lot mm -hmm. of times human stories. So when you talked about both the relational aspect of this work and systemic change, it's those, those human stories. Um, and a number of my people, of people in my family, um, were for the death penalty until I had them start writing the guys I was visiting on death row and they built mm -hmm. relationships with them and they saw this person as a human being. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's those human stories and through relationships and understanding and meeting each other. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the relational work, that doesn't mean that um, black people have to do the work of making white people less racist. Oh God, so that's, <laughs> that would that's be horrible. Do with each other. Right. <laughs> but there is a relational piece of this work and to listen to the stories of those impacted. And there's ways to do that so that we're not burdening and asking other people to labor to make us be less oppressive people. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So it's more about accompanying, partnering. Um, and I'm also aware that you do a lot of heal you do healing ministry. I mean, you serve as a as a spiritual companion, you practice Reiki, you your house is a house of hospitality and you're offering um a place of refuge and peace to people in a in a city that were that's in a world that's full of a lot of pain and suffering. And so I know you too as a person who is a wonderful neighbor and I mean you've lost friends uh people that you deeply love you've grown to love them through your work through your presence and then you go with them to the cross in many ways and you're with them at the foot of the cross and so I'm just conscious of the fact that you model that for us and I thank you so much for your witness and example yeah and, and I'm wondering too, along those lines, I mean, you've sort of touched on it some when you were talking about your family, but um, what else would you wanna say about how gospel living and Christian, Christian discipleship is messy? Yeah, um, I think we have to enter into that messiness. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, sometimes it may look like being the only person of your race, age, gender, economic background in, in another space. Um, sometimes uh, my work takes me from everywhere, from having conversations with um, billionaires, trying to get them to um, invest in um, social movements, um, and this theory of, of change that comes from organizing to um, being people on, on death row. And the ministry's the same. Um, it's learning to love and um, transform hearts and to see God in everyone and to help people to know of know of God's love for them and to help them love other people in a deeper way and to be to be the face of love to other people to be the heart of love the heart of God for other people mm. in whatever yeah. way that looks like so mm. and so 
<laughs> it sounds like you're a woman that's, I, I, and I know this too, a, a woman truly uh, rooted in prayer and the contemplative right life. And that must be part of what fuels your ability to love, to not actually have any enemies and to have compassion for the billionaires to the poorest of the poor as you are interacting with people through all these walks of life. If you're living the Gospels, you will have enemies. There are a lot of people who do. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification. I've been called lots and lots of words um, by people who don't know me and by people who are very close to me. Mm. Um, if you're, Jesus was not a well-liked people. He was executed on a cross. Um, people threw stones at him. People did not like Jesus in his time. And so if we're really doing the Gospel work, our work is to not, to not be loved by everyone. And if we're really challenging the status quo in the way that Jesus said, we're not going to, um, we're not going to make everyone happy. It, it is uncomfortable to, to challenge the status quo. It also means taking risk. It means putting your, uh, your body on the line at times. And there's been times where I've been pointed at gunfire multiple times by, by law enforcement, by others. I think about in, in the aftermath of the murder by the police of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I walked in between, you know, thousands of protesters who had been pushed into a lady's front yard mm. and weren't allowed to leave. And hundreds of um, officers in riot gear from various law enforcement entities. And when I walked in between, uh, it was kind of like the, <laughs> the parting of the waters um, and on both sides. And I walked up with conviction and to find out what was going on, had been called in as a mediator um, to that incident. And I went to go talk to the police and all of them pointed AK-47s right at my body. And any of them could have shot at that time too. And so it means putting our lives on the line um, and doing what's uncomfortable. And whether it means not getting invited to you know, Christmas parties at your work or... <laughs> <laughs> or something else, you know, like there will be times where you will not be liked and, uh, and to know with, with deep conviction that you are doing what is right and what is just in this world and, um, and living out the gospels and the teachings um, um, of Jesus and of the church. So it sounds like real messy, messy work to stay in that place of devotion, even though, you know, it's risky, risky business. Woo. Yeah. 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 Goodness. Thank you so much, Sister Allison. This has been uh, a wonderful um, sort of broad brushstrokes of all the things you're up to and, and the ways that you experience the world and God's and, and the work and the struggle of building God's reign. Is there anything else you want to add that you think our Messy Jesus biz business listeners really ought to understand about discipleship or... Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I just want thanks for having me on your podcast. My pleasure. <laughs> this podcast. And um, I think just inviting everyone to care for yourself and care for your loved ones. And, you know, we need to have in this moment of deep change and um, a possibility for radical transformation of our society and our communities in a way that we have never had begin before, where people are really waking up and seeing how various forms of oppression are impacting people, how all of our systems of, of healthcare, of employment, um, all of these different systems are failing people and they don't work. And so 
during this time of transformation and radical transformation that's been long overdue and long needed, we need our best thinking. And to get our best thinking and to get clear in our mind on, on what it is that's ours to do um, requires a lot, of, um, a lot of contemplation, a lot of prayer, uh, carving out time for silence and solitude, um, for healing ourselves, to really looking deep at our, our own woundedness um, and how oppression has impacted us and to get our most liberated and most free self back because that's how God wants us to be. And when we can let go of all those wounds of the past and to really do our own healing work and our own inner work to heal from, heal from the sins of racism and sexism and all the isms that exist out there, um, we can get our most clear thinking um, to really know what it is that's ours to do. Mm. Amen to that, sister. <laughs> sister-in-law, <laughs> the law of love, the law of social justice. Thank you so much. Aww, thanks, you, love you. Thank you all for listening. Peace. invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas the Beatitudes came up in my conversation with Sister Allison, I would like to read an excerpt of the Bible to you that includes this teaching of Jesus. It is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's presentation of the new law to his first disciples. If you are able, I invite you to close your eyes and take a slow, deep breath as you listen as, and pray, as you consider what Jesus is teaching about the path to happiness within the reign of God. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus, they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
that's episode six of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you could share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you find your podcast and leave us a review. I'd really love it and be super appreciative and even send you a sticker if I can figure out how if you uh, send a donation to me through Patreon. Thanks. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh. And I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.